and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about the failures they've had in their lives and what they learned from them. I'm your host, Ozan Morol. Before I introduce today's guest, I have a request from you. The podcast is fairly new, so I would really appreciate your help in spreading the word. You can do that in one of three ways. You can tell your friends about the podcast, you can subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform that you're listening on, or you can leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. In addition, if you'd like to keep in touch with me and say hello to me, you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter, The Weekly Contrarian. It has thousands of subscribers and readers call it the one email I look forward to each week. So every Thursday, you'll get a list of tools, articles, books, and other gems that challenge conventional wisdom and change the way that you look at the world. You can sign up for that by going to my website, ozanmoral.com, or texting my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. And if you sign up now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles for Innovating Your Thinking. And again, you can get that right now on the go by texting O-Z-A-N to 345-345, or heading over to my website, ozanmoral.com. This week's guest on Famous Failures is Vern Harnish. Vern is the founder of the world-renowned Entrepreneurs Organization, which has over 12,000 members worldwide. For 15 years, he chaired the Entrepreneurs Organization's premier CEO program, which is called the Birthing of Giants, held at MIT. He is the founder and CEO of Gazelles, which is a global executive education and coaching company with over 210 partners on six continents. He has spent the past three decades helping companies scale up. He's the author of several best-selling books, including Mastering the Rockefeller Habits, which has been translated into nine languages. And along with the editors of Fortune, he authored The Great Business Decisions of All Times. His latest book is called Scaling Up, which has won seven major international book awards, including the prestigious 2015 International Book Award for Best General Business Book. My conversation with Vern spans a wide range of topics. We actually begin with Vern's previous life as a magician and discuss what he learned from that experience. We will find out how Vern lost a million dollars overnight and almost went bankrupt. He will share with you the strategies that he used to bounce back from that failure. He'll also share with you his recommendations for books that every business owner, aspiring entrepreneur should read. And finally, we also spent some time discussing what sets apart the businesses that successfully scale and grow from those that fail. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Vern Harnish. Vern, welcome to the show. Yeah, glad to be here. I was on. So you are a card-carrying member of the International Brotherhood of Magicians. And I want to start there before we get into failures and scaling up. So what is, first of all, the International Brotherhood of Magicians and what got you interested in, in magic? Well, it's IBM and the other competing organization that cooperates is SAM. And the two of them are actually going to get together, I think, for the first time this summer and do a joint conference. But, you know, I was always interested in magic early on. And then it was my minister 
who in a previous life had been an insurance salesman door to door. And he used to have kind of illusions he'd take with him. Remember the days when the insurance salesman would come into your home? You know, most of your audience is way too young to know that. And they'd sit down with you and they needed to like entertain the children while they're trying to get the attention of the parents. And so our junior prom in high school was around a magic theme. Could it be magic kind of idea? And so he said, hey, let me dig out the illusions and I'll get you up to speed. And I was hooked. I always did big stage stuff and in fact, ended up buying a whole bunch of the original David Copperfield and other kind of illusions. And then we moved to Barcelona was on and they ended up spending their life in storage over the last eight years. I was getting ready to build a studio and because my children have gotten an interest in magic as well. And so it's been put on hold and I'm hoping now that we've moved back to the United States, I can pick it back up. Very interesting. And even though the magic itself has been put on hold, have you found that you've used any skills you picked up performing magic on stage in your very robust speaking career? Absolutely not. Okay. (laughs) Because what was interesting, I always did my shows just to music. I had very little patter in there and my speaking is the opposite. But I've always wanted to put together a show called Music, Magic and a Message. And it's one of those long term bucket list goals that I've got. So I've been intermittently working on it since I'm a keyboardist. I'm not really great at any of them, but I hope to bring it all together and do something fun someday. Oh, fascinating. So I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk first about your latest book. And the book won the prestigious 2015 International Book Award for Best General Business Book. And the book is called Scaling Up, How a Few Companies Make It and why the rest don't. Since the show is about failure, I wanna focus a little bit on the failures that happen in the quest to scale up. So in their goal to scale up, what's one of the biggest mistakes that companies make that leads them to failure? Well, you know, I don't think it was on it so much a mistake is it's a character trait of entrepreneurs. You know, 76% of the companies in the United States, and those numbers hold around the world, never get beyond the entrepreneur as the sole employee. And I like to kid that even some of those companies are overstaffed, but a boom. And it is because we kid about it at this program I founded that we host at MIT, but entrepreneurs generally don't like people. Their idea of a great company is I have no employees and really no customers interrupting the grandeurs of my vision. And they, you know, they were we were all a little weird. We were all a little strange as as a child. And and this was our way to compensate was to be an entrepreneur. And part of it is you just absolutely believe that nobody can do it better than you can. And all you have to do is hire a couple of of the wrong people who kind of mess things up because you couldn't afford the right people. You didn't know how to hire or even interview or any of those fundamental skills that nobody teaches you. And all you have to do is get burnt once or twice by someone who messes up a gig for a client or whatever the case is. And now you're burnt for life. And so it's tough to scale if you can't figure out how to get people engaged. It almost sounds like the guts you need, the type of personality you need, perhaps to start a business starts to get in your way once you uh, once you start scaling up. It is. It's that, you know, Marshall Goldsmith nailed the book title of the century. You know, what got you here won't get you there. And that's precisely what happens when you start as a lean startup. 
all the things that you do when you're ready to cross this chasm that Jeffrey Moore describes and get into what we call the agile scale up space, you got to throw everything out the door. For instance, you know, in the beginning, you say yes to everything, every job, every opportunity, even if you can't do it, you're just making stuff up in order to piece some revenue and living together. And when you cross that chasm, you've got to do just the opposite. You've got to start saying no. And you don't have the instincts for it because you remember when you were hungry and you never want to be hungry again. So and that's one of the things that happens when there's this real fear that drives instead of kind of love for what it is that you're doing. Do you have any strategies that you personally use or perhaps teach other entrepreneurs on how they can successfully say no in their lives? And, and, and the reason I ask is this, I think it makes a lot of us, me included, I'm a recovering people pleaser, to say no to people. So do you have any strategies that you use personally when someone asks you something and you're going to say no? Well, you know, I love that you use the word people pleaser because it's crazy. That's exactly the line that I find typifies entrepreneurs. Somehow or another in our childhood or whatever we grew up around, we had to be the pleaser. And that is a really useful skill to have if you want to build a company is to please customers. But what will happen is customers, if you're not careful, will want, 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 want you right to bankruptcy. Customers just want more and they want to pay less. And there's the train wreck. And I'm afraid I was interviewed for a book on healthcare because I'm chairman of this Reardon Clinic. And the sad thing is people never get around to doing the things they need to to have great health until they've had a scare, until they've had a crisis. And I think that's why failure is so critical. And I just hope people fail sooner and less painfully so they can learn these lessons that are necessary to begin to say no. So I think you learn to say no because you said yes to so many things that were painful. Right. The other thing is, is to get really clear what your strategy is, which is what we do in scaling up. And once you can get clear of what it is you want to say yes to and why, then it makes it easier to say no. But I don't think anybody knows who they want to say yes to. So they say yes to everybody. That really rings true with me as well. I think the lack of a clear vision, because if you have a clear vision, then the metric is there. Then any incoming request your way, you can ask yourself, will this request further this mission? You got if, it. If the, if the answer is yes, then you say yes. If the answer is no, you say no. But if the clear vision is lacking, then it becomes much harder to say no. That makes perfect sense. You bet. Since you mentioned the critical importance of failure, I'd love to switch to our discussion on failures. And I want to ask you about your personal failures. I mean, you've excelled in, in so many different ways in your life, as I mentioned in our introduction. But what about failures? I'd love to hear about one of the most valuable failures you've had in your life. Well, my entire life has been a series of failures that has opened up the next door. So my grandparents had companies. My dad had a company. He was, uh, you mentioned your rocket scientist. He was a rocket engineer on the Titan project for Martin Marietta out in, out in Colorado. And then he and his three buddies spun out and launched a company, Higher Electronics, that was just on fire. And it grew very rapidly. And then it tanked in the 73 recession. And it put him in a massive funk. He never recovered from it. I was on. We lost everything. Back then, you didn't declare bankruptcy. He kept selling everything off to try to save a business that he should have just grabbed what we had and ran with. But we ended up with nothing. And I went from this kind of beautiful school, wealthy community, Littleton, Colorado, 
to moving in what we had left in a couple of wheat trucks we borrowed from my grandfather out to Western Kansas, Kinsley, Kansas, literally 35 miles this side of Dodge. And he became an alcoholic and never recovered and lost him last year, a year ago, uh, 2016. And I swore I never wanted to, you know, face that myself again. But I, when it was time for me to launch Gazelles, we did a half million, million, two million, four million, getting ready to do eight million. I'm going to be an Inc. 500 company. And boom, 9-11 hit and lost about a million dollars in eight weeks. And I was upside down overnight because I was doing dutifully in the 90s what you're supposed to, which is lose money as I was scaling. It raised money and spent it and was losing money and and just trying to stay ahead of the creditors. And then when you lose a million overnight, that was enough to tank us and almost lost the house. And I'm like, whoa, deja vu. I'm where my dad was. But I, I hopefully have taken a different direction and and we've scaled out of that. But it went from ended up in Kinsley, which I never would have thought to I poured mustard all over myself in my interview at Yale uh, with Dr. Bigler that made me end up at Wichita State because I also blew, you know, sending a $25 fee to hold my scholarship at Rensselaer to, you know, messing up my conversation with Harvard. So that's why we ended up over at MIT with his executive program. I mean, it's just been a comedy of, of errors or a, a series of unfortunate events that have led to why I'm doing this instead of being on some nuclear Navy ship and probably in the nuclear industry, which is where I was headed. So if we can take you back to after 9-11, when you lost a million dollars, you, you mentioned how that made you feel, but how did you then pick up and, and keep going? Because that's one of the things that's so difficult with failing is that once you fail, you want to quit. So how did you find the resilience to, to keep on going? Well, the great news is I founded a group called EO, Entrepreneurs Organization, and at the heart of that, like YPO, was this forum. And so I had a group of trusted colleagues who rallied around me, and that's what we do for each other, to kind of support each other, share stories. Hey, we've all been there. You're not alone. And you begin to hear how they got out of it. So that Part of it was just having an unbelievable support network. And it's an interesting statistic I, I read that particularly in the United States, one of the biggest afflictions is loneliness, particularly among men. The survey of men over 50 said, you know, who's your best friend? And most everybody reported it was their spouse, which doesn't match what the spouses have tended to report out. And so I've I've half kidded that most of these men, you're going to at least need six friends to carry your casket. And when I ask that question, they start making a list and it's like, well, I'm not sure he'd be available and he'd probably be busy and not sure he would come. And and I, among other things on our one page personal plan, I made a list of the six, at least that I'm going to make sure I stay close to and, <laughs> and maintain as uh, as friends and having six friends is a lot relative to a lot of folks, particularly in the U.S. It's why we loved Europe. It's a whole different kind of mentality over there. But anyway, so it was my EO forum. And then second, our chapter chose to host Robert Kiyosaki. And look, I really thought Robert was kind of a get rich quick guy. I'd never really read his book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. But I thought out of courtesy, he's coming to visit. I should read the book. And 
I was blown away by the wisdom that was in there. And particularly at the end, he talked about how when his rich dad, and we can debate the rich dad actuality, but the wealthy got in trouble, they would prime the pump and they would give a significant amount of money to a charity for good reasons and to get things flowing again. And it made sense because it's something my dad had taught me decades ago when we were applying for Paramin together, trying to recover from that financial disaster. And he showed me that you've got to give before you can receive. There was a significant charity I was involved with and they were having a massive capital campaign. And I went to my wife, Julie, and I said, hey, let's try something here. Let's make a commitment over the next 36 months, bigger than anything we'd ever thought we would commit to. And it was almost a leap of faith. And sure enough, the 2002, I got the whole thing turned around, got the investors paid off and literally, this is crazy, took to the bottom line 10x what it is that we had committed that first year to donate. And my only regret was that I hadn't, hadn't committed to, to give even more away. And so it's been a conscious effort of my wife and I, when we sit down to, to, to do our giving plan, to push to where it was painful. And it was Lynn Twist then, when I read her book, The Soul of Money, who equated money to water. And if you let water kind of go stagnant, it'll kill you. And she said the same with money and wealth and you've got to keep it flowing and so it was kind of a combination of those messages and me having to come to grips with some issues i had around money because of having been wealthy and then losing it all and some emotional things that happened around that when i was 15 i really had to come to grips with and that that was helpful pulling me out of the funk and getting things moving again so i think when you get in trouble you got to give going back for just a moment to seeing your dad essentially go through this this major failure when when you were young and by, by the way how old were you when that happened we actually had moved on my 15th birthday but he was going through it when i was 13 14 15 and they say those are quite formative years that really hone your personality around these ideas and then when you personally went through this in the aftermath of 9 11 and and harken back to your early teens watching your dad go through this experience was there any lessons or strategies that had formed in your mind when you were young that you then put to use when you were going through a similar situation after 9-11? No, it was, I really wish I could have analyzed it that completely. I gotta tell you, when it happens, you're, you're in a panic, your, your head's not clear, and I just am so thankful I had the EO forum that was there to kind of help me keep my head, head on straight and begin to help me kind of work through what it is I needed to to get things turned around. I think when the student's ready, the teacher appears. And that was Robert Kiyosaki. And the entrepreneurs organization, uh, just so the audience can have a better uh, understanding of how it works. So when you were going through this major difficulty with your business after 9-11, did you share what you were going through at a, at a weekly meeting, a monthly meeting, or did you already in your network, people that you had met through entrepreneurs organization? How did the mechanics work exactly? Well, the fundamental unit of interaction within EO and YPO is what's called the forum. So you join a local EO chapter and within that chapter, eight to 10 entrepreneurs gather together into what's called a forum. And it's a formal educational process of how to interact together, making sure you don't shit on each other, how to support each other, how to share deeply what your challenges are, and then how to make sure you know how to share back properly. And you meet monthly. 
And typically it's three hours. What you said before really resonated with me as well. After a certain age, and as you were talking about the people who will be carrying your casket, I actually added to my to-do list. Make a list of six people who might who exactly. might carry mine just so I actually have six people yeah. I can list. But yeah, yeah, so having these venues is is so important because after a certain age, you know, once you're out of college, it becomes so much harder to to meet people at a more meaningful basis. I mean, you, you always have these superficial meetings at, at networking events, but the type of environment that you described with the local EO chapters where you get together for three hours on a monthly basis and, and be honest and raw with each other is, is invaluable. It is very much so. And it's one of the things, you know, it's a little side note that the brain research has shown that when you're faced with a challenge or an opportunity, and we know that those are two sides of the same coin, as you sit around and think about it, it just lights up that amygdala, that fight, flight or flee response. And it just turns your stomach. You can't sleep at night. All of the things that you hear when you're going through massive disasters like this or facing, again, a big opportunity. And it's only when you speak it. We're actually this being that needs to talk stuff out that your you know reptilian brain shuts down and your prefrontal lobes light up like a christmas tree so you can begin to solve the problem in a rational sense and so the most important thing you need is a a safe place to talk about what it is that you're facing and that's what the eo forum provides that's excellent i've also personally found writing to be helpful as well just on a daily basis because it's one thing to hold anxiety in your head, uh, and the, at least my instinct is to just build it up uh, into something that's uh, outsized and really much bigger than it needs to be. But writing things down, uh, from my perspective at least, seems to take their power. You almost laugh at what you put down on paper as like your idea of what's causing you anxiety. Uh, it becomes much easier to, to tackle it. You bet. But I, I would still, I think sometimes... Maybe it's a unique thing in the, in the U.S. that we've substituted conversation for writing. But I like to point out, you know, we've been around on the planet for 200,000 years. We've had the spoken word for 100,000 of that. We've only had the written word for 5,000 and Excel spreadsheets for 30 that I like to kid. And so sitting, <laughs> sitting around in a meeting staring at Excel spreadsheets or written word, we are just from a paleo perspective, designed uh, in order to both survive and thrive by speaking and talking about and telling stories about what it is that we're facing. And I think it's why our brain is designed the way it is and why hearing is one of the most important senses for our survival. We could hear the prey way before we could see them, smell them or taste them or they were tasting us. And, and so the speaking and hearing is, is vital in being able to handle these pressures that we're dealing with. So we talked about how you personally rebounded from this catastrophe that hit your company after 9-11. I want to talk about the business side of things a little bit as well. So what sets apart, in your view, the businesses that bounce back from failure from those that don't? You know, first, in a practical sense, they figure out the cash. Because, look, you can get by with decent people, decent strategy, decent execution, but not a day without cash. And if you can't recover from that, then it's game over. And so we're big fans of a buddy of mine, John Mullins, wrote a book called uh, The Customer Funded Business. 
And I knew of his work and knew of him you know, years before the book came out. And that's precisely what I did. I went to 17 of my best customers and I said, look, here's what you're likely going to spend with me in 2002. I also got clear about my business model. I'd been one of the problems entrepreneurs have is to get into business. We have a tendency to give stuff away and we never quit doing that. And when I was out raising significant funds there in the late 90s, because there was some acquisition I was going to do, all the VCs kept saying, look, Vern, your gross margins need to be 55 percent. You're running 42 percent. I'm like, ah, that's plenty. Well, they were absolutely right. And I got religion after having this huge hit. So I did two things in 2002. I got maniacal about getting my gross margins back up to 55 percent, which meant I raised prices. Uh, a crazy thing for an entrepreneur to do, but I started charging really what the value was. And then I went to these 17 customers and said, look, price is going up 25%, but I'll give it back to you if you prepay me for the year. And that put an entire year's worth of payroll into the bank. And I got to tell you, you sleep so much easier and you age slower. And that was one of the philosophies Bill Gates had from the very beginning is he always wanted a year's worth of operating expense in the bank at all times. So if he didn't get a dollar of revenue, he could still survive a year. And I have absolutely lived by that philosophy since. I love that. So you're almost building a, a margin for survival. <laughs> you know, in the case that a failure hits you, you have room for, for recovering. Well, and that's why one of, I think, one of the top five business books ever written, but it's not been read enough, is Jim Collins' last book, Great by Choice. In fact, I told Jim, I am on a personal mission to see if someday that book outsells his original books, you know, Built to Last and Good to Great. And in Great by Choice, he has this chapter called Return on Luck. And he was the first to really systematically study what's the role of luck in a great business. And we all know that 50% of why we have anything we do is because of luck. We were lucky sperm. We were born in the right country. There's a lot of luck there that just goes into being at the right place at the right time. And the same with business. And what he found is the great companies had slightly more bad luck. And so it wasn't good or bad luck. It was the return on luck. Now, where does that all come around to? You fundamentally need access to cash. So when good luck comes around, the market tanks and you have a chance to jump in to buy bargains, you need cash to take advantage of that. And when bad luck hits, the banana truck hits you, that's when you particularly need cash so that you can survive. And so he found that the great companies had on average three to 10 times the cash reserves that their competition had. And so I really thank my wife, Julie. She, after coming through this mess, she sat me down and said, look, I love you, but I'm really tired of this entrepreneurial roller coaster that we're on. Because literally every month, even as I was scaling up, she would ask, all right, how much do I have to spend this month? Which isn't particularly providing the kind of safe, secure environment that, that she wanted. And so she sat me down and said, look, and we formed the Julie Fund. And I made sure that it got paid first, that we set aside a chunk of change first, because one of the challenges with entrepreneurs is all of their net worth is tied up in their business. And it's all eggs in a very risky basket. And they really have no savings. It's a precarious position to be in. And so we put that chunk of cash aside every year, which has given us a decent net worth, uh, regardless of my entrepreneurial swings. 
Aside from Great by Choice, which I'm going to check out because I only read his earlier book from Good to Great, so I just added that to my reading list. Are there any lesser known books that you recommend to people? Well, the customer funded business, I absolutely think every entrepreneur should read, devour and, and pay homage just to, to the cover title. But my favorite book of all time is, and I think most people maybe know about it, but I find not too many people have read it. And that is Eli Goldratt, Rest His Soul's book called The Goal. And it's a parable. It's one of the early business books written as a parable. So it's very easy to read. They just updated it last fall into kind of a visual version, though it's got one of the ugliest covers I've ever seen on a book. But the key thing that Eli taught was this idea of theory of constraints, that we all have limited time, limited effort, limited resources. Even Steve Jobs, you know, would, would have paid a lot to have had just another year. And what you must do is apply all of that to the constraint within yourself first, within your business. And ultimately, if you can identify it and get control of it in your industry, you win big. And that's how you sort out among the thousand things that you have to do every day that tends to bury you mentally is you have to really line them up like dominoes and figure out which one is the first domino that if you can knock it over, gives you tremendous leverage to knock the next 999 over. But it requires you really kind of sit back and think about it. And that book will give you kind of the tools and the mental thought process for how to figure out every day, every week, every year, have I identified the constraint and am I focused on it first? Because otherwise I'm just wasting time and effort. Sure, and that harkens back to something we talked about at the beginning of our discussion. You mentioned that, I think, um, if I'm remembering the figure correctly, please remind me if I'm, if I'm wrong, but 76% of entrepreneurs never get beyond themselves, essentially. They're the, they're the only employee and so it sounds like in many cases, in the majority of cases, actually, the constraints is the CEO himself or herself. And if that's the case, so how do you recommend that people get over that mental block of I'm going to run the company by myself? I don't want any customers. How do the, the 24 percent that uh, cross the chasm and make good hires, what do they do differently? Well, I think first you've got to. Well, First, as you said, the, the main constraint is between our ears and it's 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 our own mental blocks that you've got to begin to address. But in a practical sense, it's learning how to delegate. You know, I, I have an MBA and I never took a course on delegation. And there and that was really the essence of the Rockefeller habits was how do we teach people how to delegate instead of abdicate? Because most of us abdicate here. You just do it. And it goes badly. And again, you don't want to go back there. And the best analogy I have for delegation is a thermostat. You know, you've got this heat and air conditioning system. And if there wasn't a thermostat monitoring constantly the activity and providing feedback, that whole system would get out of control, waste a lot of energy and nobody would be comfortable. And that thermostat does two things. One, it allows you to set your goal. So you state it. I want this to be 72 degrees. And that's what you have to do inside the organization is set those measurable priorities. Then you've got to begin to monitor it. And that is this habit number two, have this process of gathering data quantitatively and qualitatively as rapidly as you can. And, and then number three, you've got to feed that information back 
as quick as you can to the unit. That's what these meetings do is allow you to close the loop with people. And so setting a priority, having the data and then an effective meeting rhythm to communicate became the three fundamental habits that drove what we call. You talk about book recommendations, though, if you want to get to that constraint between your ears. I'm absolutely a raving fan of Michael Singer's two books. You know, Michael is that hippie serial entrepreneur that went on to build a multi-million dollar construction company and then a multi-billion dollar software company. He's now in his 70s, teaches at his own temple of the universe. He's been meditating twice a day like Ray Dalio, the big hedge fund guy, has for the last 50 years since he started college. And he wrote two just spectacular books for entrepreneurs and really for anyone. Uh, His second book I recommend everyone read first called The Surrender Experiment. And it's really about how to surrender to life in in the right way and how he followed that experiment and led to the results that he achieved. He then wrote his first book called The Untethered Soul, became multi-million copy bestseller, New York Times, one of Oprah Winfrey's favorite books. And it really is all, how do you deal with this voice in your head? And I love his analogy that if you had a friend sitting next to you that was saying all the crazy stuff that you have, you say to yourself, like they wouldn't be your friend. And then is that an awakening? And so how do you, in a practical sense, deal with this voice? And and he just released then in the fall, I finished it a couple weeks ago, this eight part kind of nine hour video audio series on what does he mean by surrender? And it doesn't mean give up your family, give up your job, give up your business, go sit in lotus position in silent retreats the rest of your life. It's a whole different idea he means around surrender. And I would encourage everyone listening to this program that's dealt with failure, facing failure to, to dig in those two books. I love that. Um, as I like to tell my wife, there's an asshole who lives in my head. Um, so, <laughs> but, 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 but it, it's, it's true. That's such a good way of looking at it. If you had a friend, uh, as you said, who was saying all those things to you that you say to yourself on a daily basis, there is no way you would keep that person as a friend. Yep. Are there any examples of where you apply this surrender to life? the the lessons from the surrender experiment in your own personal life? Oh my gosh, we'd have to get super personal. I'm not sure I'm ready for that. But they, they, again, when the student's ready, the teacher appears. And I've been facing some kind of pretty deep depression around some things over this last year. And if it hadn't been for this work, I don't think I would have been able to remain sane. And part of it's been a, a partner issue. Part of it's been something within the family, that kind of thing. I see. Well, well, that's uh, that's a, a high recommendation. So I'll uh, I will add this one to the list as well. And for those listening, all of these books will be in the show notes, so you can uh, you can get them if you're interested. So we're coming to the end of our conversation here, Vern. And uh, there are always two questions that I like to ask my guests. One is. Where can people find out more about you? You know, the title of the book, scalingup.com. And so we have all of our tools up there for free. Everything's open source. There's a chapter you can download for free on the one-page personal plan, along with that one-page personal plan. Because I think, look, you can't separate business and life 
I think you just have to try to find a blend of those two. So that's there. No one even has to buy the book in order to get those resources. And then a whole bunch of book and article recommendations for additional reading. So scalingup.com. And my final question to you is, uh, are there any parting words or thoughts on failure that you'd like to share with uh, my audience? Yeah, you know, it it comes from Michael Singer. You just can't take any of this stuff personal. All this stuff that's happening is not you. It's you observing all this stuff happening and you have to gain that perspective. So don't take any of it personal. That's a great note to end this conversation on. Thank you so much, Vern, for for making the time to join us. Ozan, thank you so much. It's such an important topic. Appreciate you doing work around this area. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.